Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Angie Walker, Global Head of Capital Markets Business Development at R3, the provider of private, scalable DLT platforms to regulated financial services industries. Our topic is the future of financial market infrastructures, in particular how they can move from being the centralised, closed and analogue models that they inhabit today to being the decentralised, open and networked models of tomorrow. Angie, thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening to whoever is joining us for this event. Now, as my opening remarks indicated, in banking, we are starting to see the emergence of of open networks. We hear the term open banking. So instead of a a bank uh, delivering every component of a service to a customer, banks are starting to source components uh, from third parties, uh, sometimes just making those available, sometimes combining them uh, with things that they do to create innovative new digital products and services. Uh, So you've got banks bringing in third-party components to create new products and indeed making those uh, third-party products available through their own networks. Is a model of that kind replicable in the financial market infrastructure business? Can stock exchanges and CSDs do that? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting question, Dominic. It's quite a complex uh, question because it touches on many um, facets of why distributed ledger technology and blockchains generally are incredibly useful and powerful uh, across certain different types of applications. But if you think about open banking and the fact that they're trying to create this environment where people can bring services together and make those services available that may have originated from disparate technologies and disparate infrastructures, the whole point of distributed ledger technology is it is it creates a sort of mutualization capability for the actors and the participants within a business network to be able to benefit from one or a number of applications and or service lines within that business network. So let's just let's just play that to its next level. If you think about capital markets and you think about the actors and the participants, a bit like a play on the stage in capital markets, we've got banks, we've got um, buy sides, we've got exchanges, we've got CSDs, uh, we've got regulators. And what we're able to do is through creating business networks where these mutualized infrastructures are built and where the actors and the participants of these mutualized infrastructures are able to interact with each other through this distributed technology as opposed to a number of centralized applications and technologies. What we're actually able to do is to provide an environment in which you could effectively deliver an infinite number of service lines through a single mutualized network or ecosystem and that's really important because what that allows banks and fmis and uh, vendors and market participants to do is to in a trusted and insecure and in a private setting like corda it allows them to share services and data so if you think about a post-trade life cycle instead of that happening if you look at the uh, fx or the att derivatives world that post-trade life cycle happens in many disparate technologies and requires a very excruciatingly painful and expensive reconciliation process between the parties by dropping that into a single mutualized ledger type environment in a trusted and private setting we're able to deliver a a very broad range of services to that trade life cycle 
and complete that entire journey on the ledger. So that's just one example of how we can create a, an open environment where service providers can deliver their services in, an, in, in a, um, a very fair and level setting to a customer or set of customers that want to aggress a trade life cycle, for example, or to deliver value to a service line that they are providing to their end customers. So I think it's a very powerful mechanism for bringing together a broad range of service providers and consumers through a single mutualized version of the truth. Now, the interesting terms you used there were, were, were trusted and, and mutualized. And we've actually got a, well, R3 has got a, a live example of this. You've got the London Stock Exchange Group uh, launching this private quarter business network in which the London Stock Exchange as a trusted uh, business service operator or BSO is going to allow third parties to plug uh, various quarter-based apps into its customer network to broaden, as you say, infinitely possibly the range of services that can be accessed by those customers. Now, is that would you describe that as an, a sort of app store model, or is it is it following the open banking? Are we are we getting an open stock exchange model? Yeah, I would describe it. So, I think what's important is <laughs> is to establish why somebody, an organisation like the London Stock Exchange Group, which, as you know, is an incredibly extensive um regulated market um ccp um large and scale global data vendor so it's got all of the attributes that one would expect from an exchange group um which then um uh, secures it a, an incredible client base and ecosystem that's pre-existing so lseg is in a perfect position it's got um you know um a governance capability and a, a, a level of rigor and industrialization that is, um, you know, highly respected the industry wide and the worldwide. I mean, we, you know, it is, it, it's, it's one of the most highly regulated organisations in the world. So the reason that they are incredibly well suited to um, making available a marketplace for applications within capital markets. So I'm talking about uh, service lines that we would want to deliver to a regulated institutional type. Uh, participants within a, a regulated capital market setting. The reason they're incredibly well suited to that is because of the rigor and the governance and the industrialization that they deliver every single day by being a stock exchange and by being a, a CCP. Um, so their project is called Project Trust. Um, they are already, they've already announced it in the public domain. It's sponsored by their board. Um, and their view is that they have a phenomenal ecosystem, which they do have through their through the various franchises within their group. Um, it's a globally, it's a truly global ecosystem and their infrastructure is suited, is suitably equipped to underpin all of that. And so if you imagine um, dropping a, uh, a quarter marketplace over the top of that, like a, almost like a veneer over the top of a pre-existing but very extensive and very industrialized community, what that allows LSCG to do is to effectively plug in a broad spectrum of um, suitably uh, vetted and suitably um, uh, qualified service lines that they then can make available it, uh, on a sort of over the top type basis to that pre-existing community. It's a very smart move. Um, they are very um, uh, conservative about the service lines that they will be delivering. And I think we will see, so they're all capital markets related service lines. They're not going off and plugging in applications that relate to 
um, and totally unrelated industries. They're very much focusing on delivering incremental value to their pre-existing community, day one. And that could be things as um, simple as sharing uh, standard settlement instructions through um, a cord app that's being built that will allow for the publishers and the recipients to receive those standard settlement instructions in a very secure um, and timely fashion through the use of the ledger, very important under CSDR regulations now. Um, right the way through to managing um, specific aspects of a life cycle, whether that's issuance or post-trade or in relation to um, the transfer of ownership of, of, of non-listed type um, assets such as private equity or real estate. So I think some really interesting ways in which they can significantly extend the value of the services they deliver to their pre-existing customers um, by delivering these and plugging in these various service lines. And the beauty of it is it, is, it does create a marketplace, which means that the customers can completely have complete flexibility around the services that they choose. So they may choose to subscribe to one, 10 or 50 services over time. It's entirely at the discretion of the end consumer how many of those services they would like to receive through the trust um, ecosystem. So I think it's a really smart model. And, and I do believe that um, over time that organisations like London Stock Exchange Group will potentially start to want to innovate and build service lines themselves on the ledger. But by being able to plug in external service offerings first, I think it's a very nice way of starting um, their life on the ledger. Now, you've described this as a very smart move, a very smart model for the London Stock Exchange Group. Uh, and you've begun to address this, but I, I, I'm going to ask you this question because it's, it, it, it's not that obvious, really, why this BSO, this open model, makes sense uh, for, for London Stock Exchange. I can see why it makes sense for the vendors of quarter-based apps. They get access to the client base uh, of, of London Stock Exchange. London Stock Exchange is effectively endorsing them, saying you are a trustworthy entity. Uh, they get access to this, uh, as you say, this phenomenal ecosystem, which the London Stock Exchange has built up over... I was going to say decades, but actually over centuries, if you think the London Stock Exchange has been around since, since 1801, they've got these 40,000 customers and 190 countries. That's very attractive if, you're, uh, if you just built an app uh, yesterday afternoon and you'd like to get access to that, to that network. I can see why. I can also see why the customers of London Stock Exchange might like this. They get plenty of choice. Uh, they get complete flexibility over which bits and pieces they, they want to buy. But why does it make sense for London Stock Exchange to do this, to become a business service operator, giving access to, to, to vendors, to their customers? So let me make a couple of analogies, um, which are probably uh, that are not related to capital markets. Um, what attracts you to traveling through a particular airport terminal? Might it be the fact that when you walk into the airport terminal, it's got lots of very nice and very high quality um, boutiques and restaurants and places to sit uh, and retail outlets, and it has very nice facilities and uh, ways in which that you can enjoy your time there. And the whole point is what you're actually doing, these people are going on a journey, they're arriving at the airport, they're getting on an aeroplane, and they possibly either going on holiday or they're going on a business trip. The point is, you have a captive audience, they've arrived at the front door of the terminal, they're going to get on the aeroplane, and there's a journey they're going to make between walking from the front door to the gate and getting on the aeroplane. You've now delivered by dropping all these boutiques and these restaurants and these wine bars and these hairdressing salons into your terminal. You have added a range of service lines over the top 
of their pre-existing journey that are going to drive you value because you rent that capability to those people in order for them to get access to your audience. It's no different to um, you know, incremental service providers delivering applications to your iPhone, right? It's no different to somebody like Vodafone or Ericsson or any other large in scale uh, telecommunications provider adding incremental service lines to their pre-existing capabilities. So the whole point is that the value that LSEG has, and this is this applies to a number of these very, very large exchange groups, their, 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 their value is their ecosystem, it's their community. And so what better way to increase your own revenues than to deliver more services to your own community? It's not so it's it's a it's valuable on a whole number of different levels. One in that you effectively through a pre-existing infrastructure can sweat an existing asset, which is the existing infrastructure that you run today in order to deliver more services. It also broadens their dependency on you because you're delivering by its very nature, these incremental service lines mean, mean you're bringing more value to an individual customer, which makes you stickier as a service provider than you would be if you were just simply providing one service line like execution services. I'm not suggesting that's not sticky, by the way. Um, but the point is it becomes even more sticky the more services you, you deliver, the more dependency that they have on you. But you're actually effectively renting space on your in your facility for other service providers to come and plug in their services within your within your ecosystem. So it absolutely is to their advantage to do this for a number of reasons because they're bringing incremental value, they're broadening the uh, the scope of the dependency that their actors and their participants have on them, and they're actually reducing, um, they're increasing the return on investment on their core costs of their existing infrastructure. Um, but look at it another way. If you um, did this only for the sole purpose of, um, uh, of increasing the revenue on your existing client base, that in itself is very material as an opportunity. But just think about the new participants and the new customers that this could attract for them when they start to deliver service lines that reach out to people within capital markets that don't sit within their ecosystem today. So when you start to list and make available assets that are not traditional capital markets assets that are traded electronically, like private equity and real estate and infrastructure and ESG type assets, you suddenly find that your community potentially has the capacity to grow way beyond what it is today. And so think about the incremental impact that it could have on attracting a whole new audience of people that doesn't sit within their ecosystem today. So, so the potential upside is really very significant for them. But the obvious place to start is to focus on how do you bring more value to the people you already have? And that's definitely um, where... I think we'll see a number of these BSOs start their journey. Right. So it's the it's the connections, it's the community, it's the network effects, it's meeting new the customers. Value. Yeah, it's delivering value, value to existing value. customers as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I see. Um, in some ways, quite an old idea rather than uh, just you, you can do it on a larger scale um, digitally, can't you? But is this, is this just a... Um, a theoretical proposition at this point, or are we actually seeing concrete examples of quarter-based apps joining the, uh, the the London Stock Exchange network? I, I had a feeling Fund Admin Chain had joined, but I may be wrong about that. Are, are, are apps actually joining the network now? 
Um, so I won't speak for Elsa because I think Dr. Robert Barnes would probably want to fill you in on their timelines for go live. They're not live yet. They're very shortly to go live. There are a number of applications that they have chosen. Um, they chose from a, quite a broad list of um, applications in the capital markets portfolio today on Corda. Um, they cherry picked the ones that they wanted. They have, I think, three or four uh, lined up for their first phase of go live. You would need to speak to Elseg about who they are, um, but they're all capital market specific applications. Um, and they're all production grade applications that they've chosen. And they've all gone through a very extensive um, vetting and qualification process by LSEG um, before they would even uh, you know, uh, achieve the cold light of day uh, in terms of being a service line on the trust network. So there, I won't, I won't uh, uh, front run their announcements around who, which cord apps going live first, but they do have three or four that I think they're planning to release in phase one, not all on the same day. Um, and uh, they were all uh, selected by LSEG as part of a, a beauty parading process, followed by some very extensive um, uh, vetting and qualifications around uh, around the actual service offerings. Okay, point taken about about London Stock Exchange. We will we will talk to them. But yes. from, an R, from an R three perspective, are you talking to other financial market infrastructures about setting up similar BSO networks to the one that's being built by London Stock Exchange? I mean, yes, if you actually look at, again, if you look at the D7 programme that Deutsche Börse have been working on for, um, well, for quite some considerable time, and we're, we're part of that programme of work, um, their, their view is that they would like to deliver a very comprehensive portfolio of services, um, but, they, but to um, applications that are built to deliver digital um, service lines. So their view is there'll be a number of applications that will come into the D7 infrastructure that will either be built on Corda, but they could be built on other private or um, public uh, blockchains. And it's not just um, exclusively Corda, uh, although we are very well established in D7. So their view is they will attract a number of these, uh, you know, all, um, applications that are built on Ledger or on chain, and they will deliver a range of service lines um, to those applications, such as custody and atomic settlement and those sorts of things. So I do think you'll see um, a trend way where you get very large financial ecosystems. You could even go beyond the FMI community and look at organizations that have very large and scale financial services, uh, financial connectivity like IPC and Symphony and all these um, ecosystems that exist today that are very, very extensive, who are all looking at how they can leverage applications built on Corda and make those available to a very broad audience within their pre-existing customer base. And so we're working very closely with some of these organizations to uh, find the applications that best suit the services that they deliver today. So I do think the model of a BSO will become increasingly popular. Um, and depending on the types of services these pre-existing organizations deliver to the end customer, I think that will define the core apps that are of most interest to them. I'd like to go back to, to the point you made right at the outset about the need for a trust or to be trusted here. Because it strikes me there's something of a paradox at, at work here. And this, I guess, goes to the heart of, of what R3 is and how it, how it operates and how it succeeded. But is there a sense in which these, um, we're calling these open networks, but is there a sense in which they have in practice to be closed, to be effective, in the sense they have to consist of these trusted parties within these private permissioned 
networks only. In other words, they can never be truly open in the original classic blockchain way that anybody can join this network. Well, do you think they will one day, well, maybe a better way of putting this is, is will the technology eventually make it possible to have truly open public networks? Or do you think they're always going to have to be along these private permissioned models, which they are today? Um, so I think it depends on the use case. I think there is, I think there is a world where there is a use for both public open chain-based solutions and private permissioned uh, encrypted and secure solutions. I think there are very different things. It's very much a sort of horses for courses type situation. Where I think it becomes incredibly interesting is where you see a hybrid emerging. And we actually are working very closely with a number of our customers that have already built extensively on Corda today within regulated capital markets, I should add, um, where we see an increased appetite, for example, um, to be able to onboard um, assets perhaps that have been issued on Ethereum. Um, and that's primarily because um, those assets uh, were issued uh, wanting to have a very, very, very wide reach. Uh, they didn't necessarily want to control uh, um, the, 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 the reach to which they issued an asset. And so issuing on Ethereum does give them that incredible reach with, with it being a public blockchain. But what they want to do is then be able to be absolutely sure beyond the, the actual act of issuance, they want to immediately be able to uh, secure the asset in terms of its ownership and its life cycle and any subsequent transfer of value. And I think that's a very interesting uh, point at which I believe that a world exists where public blockchains and private edges like Corda will come together. We're working very closely with a number of customers that are already live on Corda and that are about to go live on Corda within regulated markets to look at how we create that bridge between, for example, Ethereum and Corda um, in order to um, be able to represent those assets on Corda so that beyond that initial uh, process of issuing out, we can then um, secure in a private and permissioned and uh, 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 a trusted way uh, the life cycle of that asset from that primary issuance all the way through to um, end of life and maturity. And the reason that's important is obviously for those assets to ever exist within a regulated uh, capital market setting for institutional consumption, they have to be sure that they know that the asset it exists and is not going to be stolen or disappear. They need to know that the record of ownership is immutable and accurate. They need to know that uh, in relation to any associated market impact, that the ownership and the holdings of assets remain private and that throughout the life cycle, there is an immutable record of all actions and events of a regulated nature are recorded and therefore any obligations around the reporting of those actions can be um, met from a regulatory perspective. So I think you will see a world emerge where the two public blockchains and certainly in the quarter world, we see that emerge, that world coming together. And I do think that that sort of bridge between issuance where you might want to get at to a very prolific and broad audience, but then you want to secure the life cycle and be absolutely sure that the transfer of ownership, the movement of any value, the movement of the asset is very safe, secure, private, immutable. And that's really where 
a ledger like Corda comes in. So we are seeing a lot of that at the moment. Um, uh, but in terms of, you know, will Corda become an open public blockchain? No, it's actually a private peer-to-peer -peer permission ledger. They're fundamentally different technologies. So, the, the, but, but you've talked here of a, a kind of long-term uh, pattern of convergence, if you like, of bridging between the regulated and the unregulated blockchains, for want of a better term. You're seeing these hybrid models emerging already, where uh, through a quarter platform, you can start to access assets which are sitting on a public um, Ethereum blockchain, which prompts a, a, a question in my mind, are we actually moving, is there something more fundamental happening here, which we're moving away from a sort of platform economy, these centralized platforms characterized by the likes of of Amazon and Uber, or you could say both traditional stock exchanges and cryptocurrency exchanges like Coinbase are all basically platforms uh, where lots of people come along and they, in effect, you know, use the space to, to sell their goods. Are we moving more towards away from that model to decentralized networks? And that would include decentralized stock exchanges and possibly decentralized central securities depositories. The example I have in mind here is, is, is Uniswap. You know, it's a in theory, if not in practice, it's this automated market maker, it's this set of computer programs which sits on that Ethereum blockchain, pairs of tokens are being exchanged uh, without intermediation, the prices are being agreed algorithmically. Do you think this process of convergence and bridging is heading towards that type of decentralized financial market infrastructure I've heard what you just said about, you know, the heart of R3 is being this private permission peer-to-peer -peer networks. But do you think if you if you think about that process of convergence, are we heading more towards the sort of Uniswap uh, Ethereum vision and away from the traditional stock exchange vision? Or do you think these two models are going to have to exist side by side, private versus public? So I think there's possibly two separate questions in there. Let's park market models to one side for a second. Yeah, sorry, it was, very, it was a very loaded set of questions. Yeah. It, it, is, it is two questions in one. It may actually be many questions in one. Let's park market models to one side because I actually think decentralized market models have a place in this world. And I'll talk about that in a second. Let's talk about um, traditional stock exchanges and how some of these different um, asset inception and liquidity providing facilities might come together. If you think about um, if an asset starts its journey on the ledger, so let's talk about let's talk about a bond. In the old world, the bond gets issued in a paper form. Um, if it's a syndicated bond, in the words of Charlie Berman, you know, you'll get the syndicating the lead bank who builds up the book and then it gets allocated out and there might be four or five banks in the syndicate. And then each one of those takes its allocations and then they manually manage the processes of allocating out the various um, slices of that bond that have been acquired by the various investors. And so you get this incredibly um, disparate process that's done by probably hundreds, if not thousands of people on all these different systems that are not related to each other. Um, but it's still the same asset. Oh, and then you come on to secondary market trading. And then there's maybe a number of disparate venues that, they, that that asset can be secondary market traded on if you discover it, and if you know where it exists, you might be able to secondary market trade it, but then you've got to work out what the price of it is. And that in itself is a very difficult thing to do because many of these things are opaque. Um, I'm talking non-lit markets, obviously. And then of course, when you go through secondary market trading, then you've got to get to the post trade. And all of these things, primary issuance, secondary market trading, post trade administration, 
um, asset servicing today, just take a bond, it all happens in different infrastructures. They're completely different infrastructures. They're different people. There are many service providers. There's massive amounts of reconciliation. I think um, in sovereign agency debt, the level of reconciliation and repeating uh, or copying of the same information is hundreds and hundreds of times this occurs during the life cycle of one bond. Now, take that same bond, okay? Create it in its existing, I'm not trying to say code is law, we're not changing the legal representation in a contractual form, but then let's incept it onto the ledger in a digital form. Let's issue it through the ledger in a digital form. Suddenly, we now have a, a single mutualized infrastructure. No disintermediation of any of the actors or participants. They're all sitting, accessing and doing their piece of the, of the pie on the ledger. But now what we're having is a situation where the bond is now on the ledger. It's represented as a smart instrument on the ledger. Not only does the ledger know um, the, the, the dynamics of the instrument, but it's also capable of understanding the DNA of that asset. And what I mean by that is it understands the logic of um, the obligations that the asset has over time. So the bond gets issued, the investors buy the various um, share, you know, slices of that bond, and it sits within their portfolios, um, uh, either for long-term investment or short-term investment, depending on what type of class of bond it is. Um, now we come to secondary market trading. The bond is still on the ledger. Now we've got a situation where it's much easier to find because we can start to search for particular classifications of that bond. And through the use of the ledger, anybody who owns a bond that's of that, um, of that particular classification or meets those particular criteria can make themselves available, can allow uh, people seeking that asset to know that they own an asset that meets the criteria. That was not possible before we put that bond on the ledger. So that's journey number one. We've now improved the pre-secondary market asset discovery. We can improve the pre-secondary market price discovery. So we now have other things that we can compare it with. So even if it's a very liquid instrument, we're at least able to uh, compare it with other instruments that may exist on the ledger that are similar in nature. We now integrate into secondary market trading venues completely seamlessly. So we're not changing that world, but what we've done is we've made that path into secondary market trading much more seamless, much more efficient. And then it comes out the back end of secondary market trading that might be through uh, trade web or market access or, or whatever. And, and now we've got a post-trade life cycle and now we're doing that on the ledger. So now we're going to transfer the ownership on the ledger. We're going to move the value on the ledger. We're going to record the transfer and any associated uh, reporting obligations on the ledger. And even we're moving towards a situation where regulators will have a view, a gallery, a viewing gallery where applicable onto the ledger and will be able to view those transactions occurring uh, potentially in real time. So what's happened is rather than having um, tens or hundreds or thousands of different people, processes, infrastructure, reconciliation, duplicate copies of the same record occurring in all of these disparate infrastructures throughout these various life cycles, we have one record, one version of the truth. It sits on the ledger. All of the actors and the participants, whether that's primary market, whether that's origination, whether that's secondary market, whether that's post trade, uh, settlement, reconciliation, well, there is no reconciliation, reporting, 
um, netting, all of these processes happen on the ledger. It's a very different um, world to the one we live in today. And it drives much greater efficiency, much lower risk. Um, it, it pretty much eliminates reconciliation altogether. And it brings a much fairer environment in which people are able to issue, to discover assets, to price those assets, to secondary market trade those assets because it improves the liquidity of them because they're more accessible and it's more cost effective. And then that whole post-trade life cycle in terms of reducing the risk, the cost, the time, um, obviously it drives much greater efficiency. So it's a very different world, but to the benefit of the existing actors and participants. Um, you, you, you put part of my question to one side. I think, oh, I did? I think, I think I get it. models, yeah. yes. Um, so listen, I think let's talk about, how, let's park the whole uh, high volume, low frequency type assets. They are not destined for the ledger in the next few years, not in my humble opinion anyway. So anything that trades relatively high volume, so think about your traditional sort of FTSE 100, FTSE 250 type assets, I do not believe are destined for the ledger near term or not in my professional lifetime. Um, now, what's very interesting is when you move to illiquid instruments. Now, I do think uh, within the existing capital markets, I think there is an opportunity to do decentralized matching or even just to use the ledger to take assets that trade electronically today to fractionalize them in order to create enhanced liquidity. So I do think there is an opportunity to have decentralized matching alongside the existing uh, lit order book type market models uh, for instruments that are particularly illiquid or instruments that are non-traditionally traded in an electronic form. So you think about a piece of infrastructure, um, a large ESG type asset, um, commercial real estate, um, uh, private equity, these assets, when we put them, represent them in a digital form, we can then start to think about decentralized sort of RFQ type um, uh, market models on the ledger because we don't have to worry about uh, trading very, very high volumes. We don't have to worry about ultra low latency, you know, sub 10 millisecond type transactions because we're not dealing with markets that have that level of volatility and price sensitivity. So I do think there is a very... Um, a, a very strong possibility that you will see a number of these decentralized, and we've actually done quite a lot of experimentation in the decentralized RFQ uh, world, for example, where we can see an opportunity for uh, existing liquidity venues like London Stock Exchange Group to offer um, some of these uh, instruments traded in a digital form, but fractionalized to a very high level uh, in order to try to increase their liquidity. And I think you'll see that and you'll see some of these new instrument types that are not traditionally traded electronically, like real estate infrastructure, ESG assets, uh, private equity, coming into um, traditional markets through the use of the ledger and fractionalization. So we're moving away, just if I could summarize what you said, we're moving away from this, the fragmented systems of the past, the fragmented data sets, with these very complex reconciliation processes going on to, um, to, to arrive at a, a, a single version of the truth, if you like. And this is gonna be replaced by a, by a common mutualized infrastructure, a ledger. Um, and the instruments that are first gonna go there are gonna be the less liquid or illiquid instruments rather than the um, high volume, uh, high, low latency, low price volatility, 
instruments. Now, this may be just a matter of, of vocabulary, but I'm I, but listening to you, I wonder if, if it's more than that. We both use this term decentralized as if it's pretty obvious what that is. But is that vision of the future you've just outlined, is that is that decentralized or is it distributed or is it in some way centralized in that there's a there's a common ledger? Do, do these terms actually matter? Should I care about decentralized versus distributed or not? So the technology is distributed. Um, I think in reality, within capital markets, I think you will see a mix. <clears throat> so distributed, distributed relates to the technology. I think in capital markets, you will see a combination of centralized and decentralized functions. So if you think of the life cycle of an asset, and I don't think it's just to correct you, Dominic, I don't think it's one ledger. I think it's uh, business networks within business networks. So I think what we'll see is um, large business networks building up, but within those business networks, it's a little bit like the solar system, uh, where you get lots and lots of stars within the solar system. I think you'll see individual business networks, but that sit within bigger business networks. And the whole point of interoperability, and we are we prided ourselves on building from the very beginning of the original designs, the DNA of Corda is about interoperability. And that journey, of course, has started with interoperability between Corda business networks. But I think what we'll start to see is a flow, a free flow, and we're not there yet, but it's certainly one of the things that we're working very hard on, a free flowing of assets and cash between business networks, some of which are private and commission ledgers, others are public chains. And I think you'll see assets and cash flowing freely between them. Now, going back to is it distributed or, de or decentralized, distributed is relating to the technology because uh, called with distributed ledger technology, decentralized is relating to the way you've implemented it. So you can implement Corda in a centralized form. You just put all your nodes in one place. I think what you'll see in capital markets is a combination of centralized and decentralized use of the ledger. And what I mean by that is within, uh, for example, a financial market infrastructure um, provider like an exchange, I think you might find clusters of Corda nodes or clusters of nodes uh, within a centralized environment because it suits the applications in relation to that particular service line. But then beyond that, when you start to look at another part of the life cycle, you might find the service lines that are being delivered in relation to that part of the life cycle um, leverage the nodes in a more decentralized way. So if you think about primary issuance, I see primary issuance mainly as more of a decentralized function. So yes, there will be certain actors and participants that are performing centralized roles, the issuer, the, the issuing bank or banks, um, but the investors are decentralized. So the nodes will be um, spread in a distributed way around those um, investors that want to invest in that asset. When you think about secondary market trading, I see that much more as a centralized use of distributed ledger technology. So I think you'll get this combination, depending on the use case, you'll see the ledger used either in a centralized form or in a decentralized form or in a combination of the two. And I think it depends on the use case and where you are in the life cycle. Right, so the future is going to be uh, much less binary than, than is often assumed, which makes me ask whether you ever worry that Corda, as you pointed out, it is, it is a point-to-point, peer-to-peer system, only the the members of that network get to see the data. That has lots of advantages in terms of, of speed, scalability, and especially in terms of getting support from incumbents at the outset. 
Do you, this is really a question about interoperability. Do you ever worry that that model that, that is working very well for you now um, might not adapt that well if the future evolves much more in favor of, a, of an open data, open network model? Or do you think we're just gonna have, uh, you probably feel you've begun to answer this question already, but I think it's an important one. How well adapted is Corda if the future evolves much more towards open data and open networks when you've got this closed permissioned model, which is working very well now, but how well adapted will it be to a, to a different future? So I think I think I probably need to answer that in two ways. First of all, you need to so let's park the asset and the liquidity to one side, the assets that flow through the network. We'll park those to one side because I think there's a very important distinction between the benefit and the value of public and open chains and private permission ledgers in relation to the existence of the asset and the life cycle. We'll come back to that. If you look at not listen, I'm focused entirely on capital markets. So I live in a very uh, specific part of the universe but it's very important because when we designed Corda uh, the actual inception of Corda was specifically by and for use within financial uh, capital markets in regulated capital markets activities and the, and the broader financial services industry. If you look at regulated capital markets um, we are required to provide um, privacy um, we are provide, required to provide integrity, authenticity, immutability. These are all absolutely basic fundamentals of the way the industry operates. That isn't going to go away. Okay, so, so um, I'm sure Goldman Sachs or any other tier one investment bank wouldn't like to think that any other tier one investment bank, such as Credit Suisse or Morgan Stanley, could see every single trade that they do every single day. I'm sure they wouldn't want them to know what assets they hold within their inventory, what positions they are holding, whether they're short or long. You know, these, this is all very fundamental capital markets information. Primary issuance, you know, how big is the book? I mean, these are all things that we are, have market impact. So if you just go back to the basics of capital markets, you know, we have to be able to deliver solutions that are private, that are immutable, that have integrity, that are industrialized, that have um, uh, accountability and are reportable in order just to meet the most basic obligations of a regulated market activity. You're not going to do that on a public open blockchain. Now, having said that, a public open, open blockchain is important because what that does do is it allows for a prolific or proliferation of the audience who might invest in an asset. And so, so if you think about public open blockchain, in, in my opinion, public open blockchains, I think, will become an, a very important provider of liquidity, assets, liquidity, to private, uh, regulated, institutional-grade market activities. And, I, and, I, and the example I would give is things like that we don't traditionally trade electronically today, but are very valuable assets in their own right. Things like infrastructure, real estate, um, uh, very large in scale, esoteric, um, private equity, um, you know, um, ESG type assets, huge, great assets that are very real, very high quality, but very um, esoteric and, and uh, unique assets in their own right. Now, where I think we'll see um, a, a, a coming together of those worlds is where we can consume those assets into a regulated capital markets world 
and we're able to secure and meet the obligations of the consumers and the users of those services when it comes to their obligations as regulated parties. So I, I, I don't fear the fact that we're private and commissioned and, and, uh, and they're useful and, uh, and all those things. That's a very vital part of what we do today. It's, it's, you have to differentiate between the benefits of an open public blockchain and the benefits of a private and commissioned ledger. And they're, they're very different things, but they both, they both have significant value to bring to the community, but in different ways. One final question for you, uh, Angie, and I suppose it's about a different aspect of interoperability. You said uh, earlier today that you were extremely busy, and I'm not surprised. You've got <laughs> DLT projects going on in cash with Instamatch. You've got equities going on with uh, London Stock Exchange and Novora. You've got bonds going on with Ledger and Agora. You've got FX going with Finality. You've got collateral management going with HQLAX. You've got mutual funds going on with Fund Admin Chain, and you've got uh, even trade finance with uh, a trade finance project with, with Marco Polo which made me wonder, are these various DLT solutions being devised in which you're working on different areas of the financial services industry and the capital markets industries? Are, we, are these going to be interoperable? Are we in danger of actually reproducing the asset class silos we have already? Uh, no, that's the whole point, isn't it? It's the whole point of having this um, superhighway that allows for this free flowing over time of assets and cash between these <clears throat> different service lines and different business networks. That is the whole point of the use of the ledger is it's not creating silos. It's the opposite. It's the antithesis of uh, how the markets exist today. If you think about capital markets today, equities tends to trade within its silo. You know, you might trade or have a global EOMS. You may then have a separate middle and back office system, but that quite often is very separate from, for example, the way you trade fixed income. Yet these people could be sitting next to you at the bench of desks that are directly next to you within the trading floor. And yet you step a bit further down the trading floor and you come to the FX team and they're working on a completely different uh, technology. And their post-trade process is run by a completely different team on different and disparate infrastructure. So it's actually quite the opposite of silos. What we're actually doing is through the use of the ledger and multiple ledgers and multiple chains, allowing for a free flow of assets and cash. And it isn't happening all today because we've still got a great deal of innovation to do to make these things happen, but it's what we aspire to. It's what people are working and collaborating towards. Many people who didn't historically collaborate are collaborating to do this. But it's if you think about it as having the ability to be asset class agnostic to build infrastructures that not only can underpin the assets that we service in capital markets today on a single infrastructure, having equities and FX and fixed income and OTC derivatives serviced on the same mutualized infrastructure is a far cry from where we are today. But then if you add on top of that, being able to start to bring in a broad spectrum of new asset types, real estate, private equity infrastructure, fine art, you know, uh, uh, esoteric assets. Um, it's, and then you leverage the same infrastructure for all of these new asset types. What we're actually trying to do is we're trying to create a much more mutualized and much more highly leveraged single type of infrastructures where these assets flow freely from business network to business network in order to be available to a community of investors at various times during their life. So. It's very different to the world we're in today, where we, we do discriminate 
between an equity and a bond because equities trade on Sodesta and bonds trade on iron, right? It's the same thing. But the point is, um, it's the same brand, not the same platform. Um, the point is we discriminate today and we discriminate in the way we build technology for existing capital markets, but I don't believe we will in the future. I think if you look at where uh, Corda is going, if you look at where a lot of the applications are going on Corda, you will see multiple asset classes being serviced by the same infrastructure. And I think it's we're already doing that within the post-trade space already. And just to be clear about this, your, your vision of the future would be one in which, for example, a client of, of Instamatch holds some cash. You could pledge that cash in a repo trade on HQLAX. Somebody, an investor who holds bonds on, on Ledger Edge or Agora could pledge those into a, into a repo trade on HQLAX. Maybe a mutual fund manager on, um, on fund admin chain could actually access, I don't know, trade finance as, a, as an asset class for a trade finance mutual fund. Is that, is that the vision? These assets actually become interoperable at the, at the technical infrastructural level? Yes, so you're absolutely right. As long as the quality of the asset is appropriate. So a bond is a really good example. And we're already starting to explore these journeys already between the various corner business networks a bond that is effectively onboarded onto Agora um, could effectively make its way into a basket of securities that sits within HQLX, which is then traded on the Eurex repo market. That trade could potentially eventually be um, settled DVP using cash that's incepted from SMB, for example, who might deliver cash atomically to the ledger in the form of wholesale commercial bank cash today, but eventually central bank cash so yes absolutely the point is is that this free flowing of assets and cash um uh in a in a non-discriminative way on the ledger on a on a centralized mutualized infrastructure or sorry a mutualized infrastructure between these centralized and decentralized uh service lines is absolutely where we're going and, and you made a very good example by linking the likes of agora to hqlx to somebody issuing cash to settle a DVP, uh, the obligation created by a DVP transaction uh, through the Eurex repo market. So I think it's very interesting to start to see this, and we're seeing it now within the Corda business networks that have already been built and are in production. You'll start to see this coming together of the various service lines. So they, they start to become liquidity providers to each other, basically. Andrew Walker, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Thank you, thank you very much.